Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-host, Melissa Colston. Hello there. So it is February, the shortest month. Yep. So we thought we'd share some of our favorite short reads. Yeah, it was a fun one to, to find books for. I don't read short books very often. <laughs> <laughs> so you want to kick us off with the first one? Sure. So while I was finding books to recommend for this episode, I ended up pairing a, a few together. So it sort of happened naturally and I figured I'd just go with it. So we'll be talking about them together. Uh, in the end, short books means more books. <laughs> more books. So the first pairing that I've got is Sea Prayer, written by Khaled Hosseini and illustrated by Dan Williams, and The Displaced, which is edited by Viet Thanh Nguyen. I'm really not good with that pronunciation. My apologies to anyone who knows how to say those words. Anyway, both of these books were published in 2018 and featured the stories of refugees from around the world. Sea Prayer reads like a letter from a father to his son about the home they had to flee, the danger they face, and the helplessness the father feels. The book was created and published in response to the death of Alan Kurdi in 2015, whose photo we saw all over the world. Uh, heartbreaking. And the book is both beautifully written and illustrated. Profits from sales are donated by the author to the UNHCR organization that works with refugees and the author's own foundation that works to support refugees around the world. Um, it's it is it looks like a children's book, um, but it's not for children. Um, we we've got it classified here in the adult fiction section, and it's just it's it's well worth a read. Um, it's one of those, at the end, you're like, who put this dust in both my eyes? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not crying, you're crying kind of situations. Um, but hi highly worth it. And to go along with Sea Prayer, I would also recommend The Displaced, which includes essays from 18 refugee writers about the complicated issues that surround refugees and their experiences. It's very easy for those of us reading about the refugee crisis to think of refugees as this big homogenous group, but each person's story is so unique that lumping all refugees together is as reductive as it is dangerous. The Displaced features stories from folks all over the world, telling stories that started 40 years ago or 10 years ago or just two years ago, talking about the toll of displacement and what it means to have to leave your home and seek refuge elsewhere. It, it works to, to expand uh, upon the story that starts in Sea Prayer and and give you a lot more to think about and a lot more different aspects to think about with with regard to the refugee situation um they're both not easy reads but they're really really powerful um and can you know especially if you don't know a lot about refugees and the history of refugees um the displaced is really great because it features people you know, from Bosnia, from Vietnam, from the Middle East, from all over, people that have fled from various conflicts throughout history. Um, 
So definitely worth a read. Uh, as far as what to eat with these books, I would suggest paying a visit to any kind of ethnic market that might be near you. Even if you don't have the great selection of Asian and Middle Eastern markets like we have in Lexington, you're probably closer to a Hispanic market than you might think. While reading Ariel Dorfman's essay, How Succulent Food Defeated Trump's Wall Before It Had Even Been Built, the author ruminates on the amazing variety of Central and South American foods he can find in a market in Durham, North Carolina, where diasporas come together on a grocery store shelf. He explains, quote, to stroll up and down the grocery aisles of that store is to reconnect with the people and the lands and the taste buds of those brothers and sisters and to partake, however vicariously, in meals being planned and prepared at that very moment in millions and millions of homes everywhere in the hemisphere, unquote. Pay a visit to a local ethnic market and explore the ingredients that others find as familiar and mundane and as comforting as I find the cooker, cookie and cracker aisle at Kroger. Maybe pick out an ingredient to Google or an unfamiliar flavor of Lay's chips to try. You might be surprised. So most of the books that I chose are fairly heavy oh, for yeah. this month too. So short does not mean insubstantial absolutely not and sometimes it's for the best because then right you don't have 400 pages to face down every time you pick it up yeah it's <laughs> it's an intense read but something you know that there is a there is a clear end point mm -hmm. um so the first book that I wanted to talk about is called our souls at night by kent harriff and um, I found out about this book when I was looking for a book that was similar to Lila by Marilyn Robinson. And so I do recommend this book for anyone who has read Lila and liked it. Um, Our Souls at Night begins when 70-year-old Addie Moore calls on her neighbor, Lewis Waters. Both Addie and Lewis have been widowed for many years, and Addie has a surprising proposal for him. Quote, I wonder if you would consider coming to my house sometimes to sleep with me, she says. Addie quickly clarifies that she's not talking about sex. I'm talking about getting through the night, she says, and lying warm in bed companionably, lying down in bed together, and you staying the night. The nights are the worst, don't you think? What follows is a bittersweet love story as these two people come together to find companionship. They live in the small town of Holt, Colorado, where Harif's other novels are set, and the town gossips pounce quickly on the new couple, as do Addie and Lewis's adult children. But Addie and Lewis are both determined not to live for other people at this stage of their lives. Our Souls at Night is a slim, spare novel. Like the best of Hemingway or Carver, it relies heavily on subtext-filled dialogue that allows the reader to get to know the characters as they are getting to know each other, all their regrets, fears, and hopes. The book's tone is tender and sly, but never maudlin. It made me wish that Addie and Lewis had more time together and that I had more time with them. And I actually found out after reading the book 
that the author wrote it when he was very close to death himself. He actually finished the draft and I think died a week later. Oh, wow. Um, and knew that he was dying. He had a terminal illness. So finding that out makes it even more poignant to to read this book where these characters are confronting their mortality. Um, so we will need some comforting foods <laughs> for this um, slim but heavy book. Um, and Addie and Lewis eat simple comfort foods throughout, um, macaroni and cheese and canned green beans and takeout hamburgers and even some sloppy joes. <laughs> Um, so this book inspired me to finally try making vegan macaroni and cheese. And that's one of those things you see recipes for all the time. And I just have never tried making it myself. Um, so I did try a recipe that um, was made with cashews and miso and nutritional ye yeast and lemon juice and lots of spices. So it had a lot of kind of cheesy, salty flavor. Um, and it made this really big casserole-sized dish. And my husband and I polished it off in just a couple of days. <laughs> so that's so a, a ringing endorsement. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, but was it mac and cheese? Well, you know, when you can't eat cheese, <laughs> it doesn't really matter if it's true, mac true. and cheese. True. Um, and, you know, I haven't eaten the real thing in a very long time. So certainly I would not say this is going to fool someone who um, regularly eats the real stuff. Um, but if you can't or don't. Um, then this may satisfy your craving for carb-filled cheesiness <laughs> and saltiness, just like it did for me. The recipe is from the Simple v Veganista blog, and we'll link to it on our blog. So my next pair of books are somewhat on the lighter side. They're not quite as heavy and they're fiction, <laughs> but they are The Emissary by Yoko Tawada and Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata, both published in English in 2018 and both a little off kilter for what I would imagine the average American reader to be used to. Uh, the Emissary is set in Japan after an undescribed and unnamed disaster that has contaminated the water and soil. The result is that the government has instituted a strict isolationist policy, and that while the elderly stay strong and healthy and cannot seem to die, Japan's children and younger elderly, <laughs> she uses a lot of different interesting terms for um, people of different ages, but the, the children are born weak and sickly and also very wise. Um, the book doesn't have much of a plot to speak of, but I still found it compelling enough to keep picking up and going back to. And it is, it has sort of a wry, dry humor. Um, and I found myself laughing out loud or reading out lines to whoever was nearest. Uh, several times um, 
Tawada is known to play around a lot with language and um, themes of language and how language changes um, are found throughout the emissary, which I think helps to inform the post-apocalyptic world that she's built, but doesn't overly describe. I don't know. It's it's a complicated book. Um, I feel like I missed a lot and kind of need to think about it a lot more and maybe read some articles about it uh, just to sort of see what I missed and try and catch the themes that went over my head while I was reading it. Um, so it's it's not your typical straightforward story, but, you know, for a lot of people, that's the kind of thing they're interested in. <laughs> and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was um, just a really creative, creative story. Um, I actually... Um picked that up on the shelf oh, yeah? um, and looked at it. I And it looked really interesting to me. I didn't end, end up checking it out. I think I already had, a, you know, yeah. a bunch of stuff checked out. The same thing happened to me. <laughs> I had like eight books to read. Um, but yeah, so that's that's good to know. I will put it on back on my list. Yeah. And as well as the convenience store book I have. Well, that's the next one I'm yes. going to talk about. <laughs> Um, the book to pair it with is Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata. Um, it's a, a more straightforward story with a plot and plot points and things like that. Um, and it's about a woman named Keiko who identifies herself as not like everyone else. Like It's something that she talks about a lot in the book. Um, she's a misfit and she works in a convenience store near her, Japan, her apartment in Japan. The short book contends over and over again with the idea that Keiko finds herself completely fulfilled by her work at the convenience store, and yet also understands that she is not following the normal path that society deems appropriate. And it also, as a result, talks about the effect that that path and not following the normal path uh, has on Keiko's own identity. I really actually enjoyed listening to the short audiobook. It's less than four hours long. Um, because, in part, I think the narrator just hits the really perfect tone for her. Because um, her outlook on the world inform, you know, it is reflected in the text. It's very straightforward. Um, there isn't a lot of emotion. Um, and I thought the narrator narrator did a really good job of of making that come to life while also not being too over the top <laughs> um it's not like they're both just short little weird books I, I really enjoyed them um so definitely check those out and as for what to pair with these i would pair these japanese novellas with a rice ball like keiko buys at the convenience store for her lunch and a juicy orange or mandarin like Mumei, Mumei and Yoshiro enjoy in the emissary. You can find a thorough discussion of Japanese rice and ubiquitous onigiri in Masaharu Morimoto's cookbook, Mastering the Art of Japanese Home Cooking. Great, thanks!
So my next book is also an odd little book about Japan <laughs> that I just happened to stumble upon one day while browsing. And it's called Savage Park, a meditation on play, space, and risk for Americans who are nervous, distracted, and afraid to die. And it's by Amy Fusselman. The meditation part of the title is very apt. This is not a linear work of nonfiction, but one that makes poetic use of imagery and leaps between topics. The book was prompted by a month-long visit Fusselman and her family take to Tokyo to visit friends. While there, they visit Hanagi Play Park, a place their friends call Savage Park. It's an unconventional playground where visitors are encouraged to build their own structures using hammers, wood, and other supplies provided by the park. Fusselman writes that when they first entered the park, quote, they stood there dumbfounded, staring at the dirt and trees and the structures that were woven around and between them, structures that were clearly not made in any place where safety surfacing had ever been a subject of serious discussion, unquote. Fusselman's experiences in Japan make her question how we as Americans perceive the spaces we occupy, as well as how we perceive play and risk. The Japanese and other cultures, she argues, acknowledge that we are all going to die. Their acceptance of that fact empowers them to live their lives more fully. Americans, on the other hand, live their lives in denial of their mortality, attempting to sanitize life for themselves and their children, a tendency which manifests itself in our playgrounds, those temples to safety and plastic. While Fessiman approaches her subject as a parent, her insights apply to all adults. Quote, we are here for only a short time, she writes. We are going to die. How will you live your life is really the only important question there is, and playfully is one of the most courageous, most generous, and most fully, fully human ways to answer this question, unquote. So in one scene in the book, she enjoys takeout sushi at one of these strange parks in Japan. <laughs> parks, that, I think this is a junk playground um, where they just have like old tugboats and tractors and things that the kids can go play on. Um, so I would recommend uh, getting takeout sushi. You can do that at Kroger here in town. <laughs> it's $5 on Wednesdays. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I go to get uh, books and bites food on Wednesdays. So that's how oh. I know that. Um, and take it to the wildest place that you can find, the wildest park that you can find. Um, or if you would like to try having fun with your food a different way, you could try checking out the book Yum Yum Bento Box. And it can help you prepare healthy and adorable lunches that are perfect for enjoying at work, school, or at the park. And that is in our home cooking section. So the publishing imprint tour has this fantastic habit of publishing really excellent science fiction and fantasy novellas that suck you in and then spit you right back out. 
anyone who's spent any time with me in the past year or so knows how much I'm restraining myself from talking about Murderbot on this podcast. As I much as you've already <laughs> talked about Murderbot on this podcast, I have, and just about every month I want to talk about it some more. So, as much as I'd like to only talk about Murderbot, I am instead recommending another tour novella called The Black God's Drums by P. Jelly Clark. Set in an alternate history, steampunky version of New Orleans. The Black God's Drums brings together a cast of almost exclusively black women, the Orisha goddesses that exert their influences upon humans in different ways, and a little bit of piracy, all centered right around Mardi Gras. The slim volume reminded me a lot of Sarah Gailey's River of Teeth, Nettie Okorafor's Akata Witch series, and Rebecca Roanhorse's Sixth World series, among others. There were so many read-alikes that I was like, oh... Yeah, this reminded me of that. And that too. These are just the ones that I wrote down. Um, anyway, it's a very quick read, uh, but Clark does a great job of setting up the world and the scene without a big information dump or sacrificing the pacing of the tale. He doesn't have room to. <laughs> it's only like 106 pages. It's great. Um, I would love to read more about just just about any of the characters that they encounter in the book. And I feel like that's a pretty good way to judge how well he develops the characters. So I, th- I think it's pretty great. Um, definitely try this novella and any of the others from Tor. Uh, every single one that I've read, I haven't been disappointed by. To wit, Murderbot, if you haven't read it yet. Also read that. Sneaking in another pairing. <laughs> Um, as far as what to eat alongside Black God's drums, uh, I would suggest looking up Miss Ellie's recipe for gumbo that was published alongside an essay on the dish by her son in the Smithsonian Magazine. There, In the essay, he takes on the rise of Cajun cooking in New Orleans and tourism and how it didn't quite match up to the gumbos and other dishes of his childhood. Mrs. Ellie's recipe looks rather time-consuming and full of shellfish and things that I don't eat, but I'm sure it's well worth the effort for people who do eat those things. Um, It sounds great, aside from the shellfish. Well, you know, you can make gumbo without shellfish. It's true, but if you're going to use this recipe, (laughs) I think you would want to stay pretty faithful to it. But the picture of it looked great. So my last book is a collection of short stories and short stories are great when you're short on time because you don't have to read the whole thing at once. You can just pick and choose. And this one is called Heads of the Colored People by Nafisa Thompson Spires. It's inspired by the work of 19th century black writers such as James McCune Smith, an African-American abolitionist and doctor who wrote a series of sketches published as The Heads of the Colored People Done with a Whitewash Brush. 
In an author note at the end of the book, Thompson Spires notes that her stories differ from the original sketches in several important ways, but they, quote, maintain an interest in Black U.S. citizenship, the Black middle class, and the future of Black American life during pivotal socio-political moments, unquote. Like the work of Paul Beatty, many of the stories are darkly satirical. In Suicide, watch... The main character is a young woman obsessing about both suicide and Facebook likes. Quote, Jilly determined to wait at least four hours before checking the status of her farewell post so she wouldn't look desperate, Thompson Spires writes. But then she remembered that she didn't have long left, so she waited five minutes and checked her phone, unquote. The story, The Subject of Consumption, is about a family of fruitarians being filmed for a reality TV show. Other stories are even darker. In This Todd, the narrator has a fetish for men with physical disabilities. In Wash Clean the Bones, a nurse and part-time funeral singer finds herself exhausted and overwhelmed by single motherhood and by the funerals of African-American boys killed because of gun violence. Thompson Spires has noted in an interview with the New York Times that parody and satire are a, quote, kind of coping coping mechanism for her, and it's a coping mechanism for the characters, too, unquote. Although satire can sometimes mask the truth, here it allows the writer to reveal the underlying trauma and yearning of her characters. Heads of the Colored People is best paired with a stiff drink, so in honor of the Fruitarians, I recommend serving it with my favorite winter cocktail, a drink that I like to call the Flora Tucky. Combine a shot of bourbon and the juice of a Florida orange over ice and top it off with a splash of tonic. The tonic cuts the sweetness of the bourbon and OJ and froths it all up into a delicious swirl that would tempt even the strictest fruitarian. That sounds lovely. (laughs) It it is. I highly recommend it. We discovered it one year during a snowpocalypse, and (laughs) those were the ingredients. (laughs) Those were the ingredients we had, and now it's my official winter drink. (laughs) I'll have to try it. I think I have all those ingredients at my house. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. We record in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. You can find out more about the library and our recording studio on our website at jesspublib.org. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.